Hello and welcome to another episode in our APW podcast series, which looks at UK residential property from an investor's perspective. With me today are the APW property experts, Stuart and Callum Williamson. APW advises expats and others from all over the world and connects them with UK properties. They've helped over 2,000 people secure over £186 million worth of property in their time. Uh, so, hi Stuart. Hi Paul. And hello Callum. Hi Paul, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, my name is Paul Shearer. I'm a writer and journalist who's been working in real estate for over 15 years. and has been a serial owner and restorer of several UK and French properties for a lot longer. Uh, so let's get started. Today we're looking at the Chancellor's spring budget statement and how it affects the UK buy-to-let market. Uh, I was looking back through my folders on the computer and saw that in our very first recording session last year, we looked at Rishi Sunak's March 22 budget. And it's been a pretty quiet, uneventful year since then. Um, wouldn't you say? Oh, wait. Uh, no, maybe there's been a bit that's happened. Uh, Stuart, take us through some of the things since last year's budget. Well, you know, obviously the biggest thing I think really is the effect of the the ongoing war in Ukraine and the effect that has had on the global uh, supply chain and also the cost of most amazing things right through to fertiliser. I and mean, I never thought the fertiliser was that be- that dependent on the Ukraine but it seems to be through one source or another. So the Ukraine war, you know, that we had two changes of prime minister, quite bizarre, uh, three different chancellors. There's the cost of living crisis, you know, panic in the markets, inflation forecast, you know, was supposed to go up by 7.4%, actually peaked at 11.1%. And the housing market has stopped booming and has started going sl- more slowly, I would say and stagnating to a certain extent. Okay, yes, it's not it's not crashing, it's just sort of flatlining a little bit at the moment. Callum, a quiet time for you last year? Oh, yes, yeah, very echo the sentiment. Uh, well, obviously, lockdown finished. We started travelling and doing live events again. Uh, it was obviously trying to get out there and sort of catch up with everyone that we hadn't seen for a long time. So lots of travel to lots of different locations, which was fun, but, you know, uh, tiring as well. Uh, the market market wrap started sort of going up a notch. I think we had our first 10,000 view market wrap. We got up to 2,000 subscribers. The podcast kept growing and um, growing our team, our growing, ever-expanding team. Um, uh, I, I was back in the UK for a bit, sort of helping get that going. So, um, so yeah, busy year outside of the markets as well. Any help for you as a company in the budget? I don't think there was any any benefit, was there? I wouldn't say so. No, a little bit about the investment in tech, perhaps, but nothing outside of that. Well, the backdrop to the budget statement is that the OBR, that's the Office for Budget Responsibility, published its latest forecast for the next five years. Uh, One of the problems for the Liz Trust Kwasi Kwarteng budget was that they hadn't run the numbers past the OBR uh, and part of their rejection of Treasury orthodoxy, apparently. Uh, How did that work out for them? Well, it created panic in the markets and uh, a massive crash and they were booted out on their ears. So uh, this year's OBR stats had a number of things to say about what they thought was going on. Um, There was the inflation forecast in the uh, sort of extended budget. It's not in the speech, it's in the documents that are released around it. Um, So Stuart, take us through that latest inflation forecast. Okay, well, the OBR, Office of Budget Responsibility, as it's known, expects inflation to fall from its quarterly peak 10.7% in Q4 2022 
to 2.9% in Q4 2023. Um, a fall of over two thirds, which is great. Inflation in 2023 as a whole is, is expected to be 6.1%, 1.2% percentage points lower than in the OBR's November forecast. Again, positive news. The direct effect of policies at the spring budget lowers CPI inflation by 0.7 percentage points in 2023-24. And the OBR notes that real household disposable incomes would have fallen a further 1.5% in 2023 had it not been for the EPG, which is the Energy Performance Guarantee, as we all know, reducing CPI inflation this year. The OBR ex- then expects inflation to fall to 0.9% in 2024 and to remain near 0.0% until mid-2026. Inflation is then expected or forecasted to return sustainably to its 2% target by by 2027 or 2028. And that's a 2% target that the, the government has set itself, which to me sounds very unbelievable. Yeah, so, so that's a kind of um, high inflation which peaked in October of last year, falling quite rapidly this year. And like you said, going down to zero for a bit and then coming back up near their Bank of England uh, interest rate setting target of 2%, which is the one that they are supposed to stick to. Uh, They had some cautionary words about domestic inflation. Uh, They said external pressures are subsiding, but domestic pressures have risen. Uh, So domestic inflation reflects the balance of domestic supply and demand in the economy. Uh, Elevated inflation feeds through into wage rises and higher price setting. And this is with items in the CPI basket, that's the Consumer Prices Index basket, which aren't dependent on imports in their supply chain and so are shielded from external conditions. They've seen prices go up and they haven't yet eased, so there's still pressure on the central bank to keep interest rates up. Energy support, Callum, uh, that's been extended. Correct, yes. A mild winter has meant that the existing cap on prices didn't cost the government as much, so there is a bit more to pass on and play with there. So, uh, according to my research or uh, the research from This Is Money, wholesale energy prices in 2023 are now forecast to be £1.50 per therm, less than half of the £3.40 per therm assumed at the um, in November 2022. Uh, Ofgem has announced its price cap will fall to 3280 per home for average energy use from the 1st of April. Uh, the £999 price cap drop is happening because of a fall in the wholesale price of gas, as we've mentioned. Uh, however, at the moment, the off-gem price cap is meaningless to most households. Uh, that is because the government has effectively been paying for part of our energy bills due to its energy price guarantee, uh, which limits bills to £2,500 a year. That was due to rise to £3,000 a year from April the 1st, but will now remain at £2,500 for a further three months until the end of June, as the government has just extended uh, it in, in, in the spring budget. For households, that means no change to energy bills until July, uh, which I guess is interesting for investors that are doing bills included. Uh, you know, something to consider any, anyway. Fortunately, this is uh, saying it's... It, it's no change in energy bills until July. Fortunately, this is when the price of energy is predicted to fall and bills should too. So uh, hopefully there's more positive news coming there. Energy experts at Cornwall Insight believe that off-gen price cap will be cut to 2,112 a year for the July to September 2023 period, then rise slightly 
to £2,118 for the remaining three months of 2023. If the price cap falls below the energy price guarantee, households on standard, standard variable tariffs will shift to that lower rate. Yes, it's quite complex because you've got Ofgem setting this uh, price cap. You've got uh, you've got the energy price guarantee set by the government, and then you've got uh, you've got wholesale gas prices going up and down like a yo-yo. And between those three, that's the uh, that's the bill that you end up paying. So, like you say, energy bills were a big concern for many during the winter. It'd been a costly time for any landlords who rent on bills on a bills included basis. Energy costs have also been a significant factor in inflation. Uh, the budget, though, it seemed, was mostly focused on growth, although the Chancellor had his headline chapter headings focused on his four E's, uh, employment, education, enterprise and everywhere. Uh, Stuart, from your northern perspective, what would you say about four E's? Um, I think I would go with KISS, which is probably keep it simple, stupid. And I think he's um, altogether... <laughs> Spend too much time working on his stories and not enough time working on what he should be doing. I was hoping you were just going to come in with the E. All right. <laughs> oh, E. E, budget. E, that budget. Anyway, there's a comprehensive executive summary on the government website, which has all of the facts and figures around this uh, OBR latest forecast. Many, many charts and statistics about government debt projections, comparisons with other countries on investment, employment, etc. Here's one uh, plucked from it about older workers. Uh, the UK's inactivity rate for 55 to 64-year-olds is higher than that of the best-performing economies in the OECD. Matching the 55 to 64-year-old inactivity rate of Sweden, a top performer, would add more than a million older workers to the labour force. So those are the kind of delights that you can read in the extended OBR report on the government website. Post-pandemic, it seems a lot of people have thrown in the towel on the world of work, and some of the budget measures were supposed to encourage people back into work. Policy changes on pensions, for instance. Uh, Stuart, take us through those. Yeah, I mean, changes to the limits that individuals can shovel into their pensions, basically. It goes up from 40000 per year to 60000 per year, and the lifetime amount limit scrapped altogether. Yeah, I saw one commentator, um, David Hanna from Cornerstone Tax, asking the question, will this drive investors away from the buy-to-let market? Well, a lot of the traction of the buy-to-let market was that it allows or is that it allows you to build up your retirement income. The thought that people who wanted to invest more into the pensions because of the lifetime limit has been removed, you know, could potentially have that effect. But, you know, it's, it's different sorts of things. It's not it's not apples and apples. It's apples and pears basically. So if you take away the lifetime limit, it makes alternative investments in reality more interesting rather than that. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just, it's a question of how much you want in your pension pot. I know that you've done some market wraps on that, which were very interesting. But obviously, this measure was geared towards the, slightly towards the NHS. They were losing a lot of doctors and, and surgeons, and they wanted them to stay in work uh, by tempting them with this sweetmeat of being able to put more in their pension pots. This question of whether people would prefer property 
or shares and, and other investments in their pension pot, well, that's still a live one, particularly with the banking crisis creating havoc around the world and in share prices everywhere. So property is still a, a thing that is hands-on and you can you can manage your own retirement portfolio. So it's still a very attractive proposition, I, I would guess. So let's have a quick look through some other thoughts on the budget. And here I'm referring to the think tank, uh, the Institute for Government, for their analysis. Uh, they ask a number of questions. How will lower energy prices affect growth and household incomes this year? Uh, Callum. Yeah, good question. Um, I'll come on to that in a second. But just to sort of touch on the pension things quickly, I was reading an article the other day saying that sort of less and less and less and less people are paying into company pensions and, and things like that. And so we, you know, certainly younger generations now need to come up with ways of funding their sort of futures and retirements themselves, you know, and property is still a fantastic way to do that. You know, I mean, ultimately, it's still going to be there, you know, in 20, 30, 40, 50 years. So it's, yeah, it's still a solid way to do that. And this article was saying that um, there are, in fact, more people looking at uh, using property to do that because of whatever reason it may be, they're not being educated on company pensions or distrust or whatever it may be. So um, anyway, uh, back to your question about uh, lower energy prices uh, affecting growth. Uh, we touched on the energy prices earlier. The IFG talks about overall economy and the forecast changes uh, since November. Britain's economy now is expected to shrink by only 0.2% this year. They expect that real household incomes to fall by 6% between 21 and 22, and then uh, 23 and 24, and not returning to pre-pandemic levels in, until 2028, in fact. So um, even if there won't be a technical recession, uh, it might feel like one. Yes, it's the economic version of the wind chill factor um, that uh, is still going to feel pretty bad with that effect on household incomes, which is largely from all sorts of other things like the high cost of living. Stuart, their next question, is the OBR more optimistic or pessimistic about the economy's medium-term prospects? Well, the forecast is better than it was in November, which is great, and also better because they revised their immigration figures upwards, and that will lead to a bigger economy, but worse because the capital investment is lower and also people giving up work. So the key focus for Hunt's speech was to try and increase the productive capacity of the economy, which is what it's all about. I mean, you've got people sitting on their backsides doing nothing. It's not really helping the economy. So it needs to try and get those productive people out there and going upwards. Yeah, the OBR judged that Hunt's new policy had resulted in the largest upward revision we've made to potential output within our five-year forecast as a result of fiscal policy decisions taken by a government in any of our forecasts since 2010. So that was a kind of pat on the back for Jeremy Hunt there. But uh, even then, the overall effect on economic output was modest, increasing output by just 0.2% in 2027, 2028. So that's a tiny uh, increase because of his policy decisions three or four years down the line. That's what the IFG says. Uh, Callum, does the government have more or less headroom against its fiscal rules? Uh, well, good, another good question, Paul. Uh, stronger than expected tax increases... Uh, lower energy prices, lower borrowing costs and less debt issuance, i.e. borrowing less, uh, means that overall borrowing is, is forecast to be 28 billion uh, less, 28 billion less, sorry, in 27, 28. 
But with giveaways in the budget, there's very little fiscal wiggle room in the coming years, which might have no impact down the line, you know, who knows. And because of some short-term uh, timeframes in, al- in allowances for expenses on investment, there is uncertainty for businesses about the government's long-term tax regime commitments. Yes, yeah, so he's uh, shooting himself a, a little bit in the foot there by not committing quite as wholesomely to uh, the capital allowance regimes uh, in the medium term. Will the government's address pressures on public service workforce and performance? Uh, Stuart? Well, he found extra cash for defence and childcare, but left other departmental budgets with only small increases and even tighter spending plans beyond the next election, which basically will affect might and will affect growth longer term. The IFG comments that Hunt did not address the current poor productivity in public services and he didn't talk about the strikes much either. But he did put put more into the reserve kitty for the next couple of years. And this is an important thing, I think. And there was a great bit of research that um, I think the Financial Times did about people working from home. And it said the majority of people working from home were actually in the civil service and the majority of those in the civil service were HMRC. And I think we've talked about it before, you know, they're working from home because they can. And I don't frankly think it's as, as productive as being in the office where you're getting stimulated by people all around you. So they should have put more focus on that, I think, personally. But that's just my view. Hmm. Will the government top up capital budgets to address cost pressures, Callum? No. Capital spending plans are unchanged since the spending review in October 21. So there is a squeeze of capital projects because of uh, rising costs leading to delays put some of the local and levelling up projects at risk. Yes, they already uh, announced delays to the HS2 uh, project. Uh, So they've just not got quite the cash to spend on infrastructure projects. So uh, they either kick the can down the road a little bit or cancel it altogether. Uh, So it's a kind of watch this space. Will any tax measures announced demonstrate a coherent strategy, Stuart? No, you know, there's no coherent strategy. Big tax giveaway next year, supposedly, but doesn't seem to be a coherent plan. Nothing um, sort of gelling it or holding it together. With so many chancellors meddling over the last decade, you know, that's the problem. Corporation tax has been going back up, but the base has narrowed. I mean, there's so many different allowances now on corporation tax. It's very confusing. They've been tackling inflation, which is why they've delayed you know, fuel increases. They have frozen income tax personal allowances for 27, 28. So more people will be drawn into paying tax over the next few years. They've fiddled a bit, but it isn't very, it certainly isn't very exciting. And it definitely isn't very clear. If anything, just look at corporation tax, there's so many allowances, it's impossible to work out what's going on. Yes, the IFG had this to say at the end. Jeremy Hunt would benefit from having a clear tax strategy as it would help him to prioritise new measures and assess which are best value for money. A long-term tax strategy would also make it easier for private sector actors to make long-term decisions. It would also improve policies with a clear strategy allowing Parliament and outsiders to hold the government to account on the choices it makes. So far, however, Jeremy Hunt's announcements on tax falls short on all counts. So that's a kind of IFG, you know, closing remarks to their report. Um, I also listened to a webinar from the British Property Federation about the budget, and they thought that there was little to do with housing in this budget. 
Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I agree. There wasn't there wasn't a lot in it to be fair from uh, you know directly relating to property you know we've seen previous budgets where there's been heaps and heaps and heaps you know changes to stamp duty changes to this that and the other epc ratings whatever it may be so i don't think directly there's much to worry about but there is i guess um you know indirectly with things like the enterprise zones and uh, the leveling up bits and bobs going on so um what do you think Stu? well there's the article in um the telegraph this week which was basically by the government talking about how they had they were freeing up Manchester and Birmingham to be independent and take care of all their own spending. They were going to use that as a model to go into other cities. They were talking about, you know, as you said, the free enterprise zones, and each one was going to get £80 million. But £80 million isn't a drop in the water. No timing on it, no specific deadlines when it would be done by. It's just lots of waffle, really, just why they're trying to get the house in order. And to a certain extent, that's good. You know, get the house in order, you know, stop spending, but they need to have some strategy. Otherwise, we're having Keir Starmer in number 10, no time at all, which could well be worse. Andrew Carter from Centre for Cities, uh, he made a strong shout out for the cities in the, he thought that actually there was an emphasis shift in the budget that meant that the government's growth strategy was skewed more towards cities. So big cities will benefit. They're going to be the drivers of agglomerations in the economy. Uh, so, uh, but that's something that you've been saying anyway recently about the, the race back to cities. You, you still seeing strong growth. Yeah, very much so. It's a case of you're seeing, I think that, you know, they're, they're trying to get Manchester and Birmingham to stand more on their own two feet. And to a certain extent, they can't be blamed when things go wrong. I sometimes feel that's the case. And they're also trying to then look at the devolution countries and say, well, you know, you do the same sort of thing. And then the, the, the individual free ports try and make them more independent. But I think it really it's a, you know, just meddling while Rome burns. Is that the right word? Is it fiddling while Rome burns? Sa- fiddling, sounds yeah. good. Sounds good. Yeah. Yeah, there you go, fiddling. <laughs> Rather than uh, anything else. You know, but cities are better. You know, we're getting more growth in cities. You know, if you don't put your money anywhere from an investment perspective, it should be a city. Should it be London? It's pretty flat down there. So the more devolved cities up north tend to be a better location. Final thoughts, Callum? Yeah, just to reiterate reiterate that, you know, it's um, the whole reversal of the race for space. City centres now are sort of are doing well from a growth and rental perspective and will continue to do that, I think. So, um, yeah, if you're, you know, you're looking, perhaps don't be looking at the um, the places that were doing well in, in COVID, those big houses out in the countryside and go back to sort of basics with what makes a good buy to let, which is pie, population, infrastructure and employment. Okay. Uh, any th- final thoughts from you, Stuart? I had an email from a client in um, Dubai saying that he was looking at the, the present situation and um, he was thinking it wasn't a good time to buy in the UK because of this. And I said to him, what I can do is I can delete the dates you put in. And I can put in 1999, 2007, 2012. I can put in 2021. It's never the right time to buy property. You know, and it's never the wrong time to buy property. It's just a case of if you've got someone who's paying off your mortgage, at the end of the day, you'd have put 30% into something and you'd be getting 100% plus appreciation if there's any back. That's not going away in the UK. 
Uh, that's it for today. Um, we haven't even really talked about the other backdrop that's going on, which is the banking crisis. Um, but join us next Monday for more UK property insights. Until then, it's a big thank you to Stuart. Thank you very much. Cheerio. And Callum. Thanks, Paul. And also thanks to all of you for listening. My name is Paul Shearer. Have a lovely day. Thanks for listening to this episode of our podcast series produced for APW by Emma Holton at Brilliant Audio. If you enjoyed it, be sure to subscribe, hit like, share it with your friends. If you didn't, keep stum. You can find more episodes in all your usual podcast places.